This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Rebecca Parsons, Chief Technology Officer at ThoughtWorks. She has more than 30 years' experience leading the creation of large-scale distributed services-based applications and the integration of disparate systems. Rebecca is the co-author, along with Neil Ford and Patrick Kwa, of the O'Reilly book, Building Evolutionary Architectures. She will be leading the workshop titled Building Evolutionary Architectures Hands-On at the upcoming O'Reilly Open Source Convention, OzCon, which will be held July 16th through 19th in Portland, Oregon. She has also spoken on evolutionary architectures at the recent O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference. And you can access the Building Evolutionary Architectures book and videos of Rebecca's presentations from past conferences on Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to safaribooksonline.com and to find out more about or to register for OzCon, go to O'Reilly.com slash conferences. Rebecca is also a strong advocate for diversity in the technology industry and the goal of increasing the number of women in coding and STEM fields, and we'll talk to her about that as well as about evolutionary architectures. Enjoy the show. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Pleasure to be here. We'll get into a little of the history of the things that led us to evolutionary architecture in just a few moments. But first, how do you define evolutionary architecture? Well, that's an important part of writing any book is to define your terms, particularly when you're introducing a new term. And we define evolutionary architecture. An evolutionary architecture supports guided incremental change across multiple dimensions. Each part of that definition is is quite important. The guided just simply means we we have a specific definition for what constitutes good for an architecture. Incremental, of course, means that we want to be able to modify these things in small chunks as necessary and change it over time. And then multiple dimensions, this is where we're we're tackling the, the question of the different architectural characteristics. So across many dimensions, many kinds of architectural characteristics. Okay, and let's get into details on all of those things throughout this interview. But I did want to ask you, like, you've said that, you know, basically predictability is impossible. So the focus should shift to evolvability rather than predictability, right? Exactly. When you look at the way the technology landscape is changing, trying to say you can predict any kind of technology roadmap is simply impractical. We don't know. Neil tells a story. He, When he talks to different enterprise architects, he tries to make a bet with them. What JavaScript framework will you be using two years from now? And no one will take him up on the bet. And as he phrases it, you don't know because it probably hasn't even been written yet. Um, And that's just two years. And when you think about how we used to think about architectural roadmaps as, you know, five and 10 year roadmaps, that's ludicrous. So what are the characteristics of an architecture that supports change? You've, You've talked about a family of software architectures that support evolutionary change. Yes, there are different kinds of architectures that exhibit particular architectural characteristics. And when you think about, for example, um, a microkernel architecture where you have a core system and various plugins, that can work very well in situations where you have at least some notion of how your application might need to change. Um, And you have, you make specific provision for certain kinds of plugins that will allow you to vary across that particular kind of functionality. If you think of a more traditional layered architecture, if you want to change, for example, your database implementation, if you've got a a traditional data layer, logic layer, presentation layer, then all of the change 
for swapping out the database will be focused in one place. So those two very different kinds of architectures support different kinds of change, make particular kinds of change easier to accomplish. One critical aspect of any kind of evolutionary system, though, is it has to be easy to understand. Uh, And so we actually elevate this notion of maintainability and thinking about how easy is it to change an architecture directly correlates with how easy it is to understand what is actually happening in the in the system. Well, are there some parts of an architecture that evolve and, and some that don't or, or can't? And how do you identify those? I guess it depends on how you define um, evolve in that context. Because let's say, for example, you realize that you have to uh, support a different kind of security model. You you may actually have to rip out what's there and replace it with a different model. Uh, for some people, they wouldn't consider that evolutionary change. In our context, we actually would because what you were trying to evolve is the behavior of the system. And there's a reason you've decided you need to swap out your security model for a different model. And so the outcome is evolving, even though from an implementation perspective, you're just ripping out a bunch of code and replacing it with something else. So I really don't think there are aspects of an architecture in terms of their outcomes that can't evolve. Uh, it's how you, how you achieve that new behavior that is going to vary based on the kinds of changes you're trying to make. Before we get into some more detail, let's step back and discuss some of the history which led us to evolutionary architectures. There was a, a long-standing notion that architectures were hard to change. When, when did that notion begin to change? Um, service-oriented architecture was kind of the first attempt to get away from monoliths, right? Yes. I, I think what we have been trying to do over the years is find ways of encapsulating functionality to make it easier to recombine things in new processes. And the whole notion behind a service-oriented architecture was that you could identify these services that would then make it easier for your business owner to say, I need to reconfigure my order workflow, um, and you could move those things around. Many people will say microservices is actually service-oriented architectures done right. Um, (laughs) And I think one of the big differences between what happened with the service-oriented architectures approach and microservices is that microservices very much are driven from the perspective of consumer-driven contracts. If you think back to a lot of the large SOA implementations that, that happened, they were primarily seen as technology exercises. And using that terminology, you could say they were producer-driven services. The IT department thought about what they wanted to expose, what services were going to be needed as opposed to waiting for applications to say, I need you to behave in this particular way, which is the more consumer-driven approach. And so what you ended up with, uh, in some ways, was the IT department speculating about what kind of functionality would be necessary and how that functionality would need to change over time. Whereas microservices architectures tend to be consumer-driven, they tend to also embrace a lot of the notions from domain-driven design which is saying we want to model the business concepts, not a particular implementation, not something that, that's driven by a particular kind of data or a particular systems implementation. And I think that's why you're seeing microservices having broader acceptance 
and more successful implementations than we had for many of the services-oriented architectures because they are actually modeling the business in a better way. And then when continuous delivery was embraced, that was a big change in the way people thought about what an architecture looked like. Exactly. I'm firmly of the opinion that if an organization doesn't embrace and adopt the principles that underlie continuous delivery, they're never going to be successful with an evolutionary architecture. The level of rigor that is introduced uh, with continuous delivery, the level of consistency that's achieved across different parts of the system, all of those things provide the kind of foundation that we used to be able to get from those five and 10-year roadmaps. You, you you, You had something stable that you can build upon. And what we're saying in evolutionary architecture is those outcomes might be stable, and we want to put a base under that of the known quantity of what that systems infrastructure looks like so that you can more safely make changes that would would have been very difficult to make if we used our traditional deployment processes, for example. As you mentioned earlier, one of the key points of the definition of evolutionary architecture is that the architecture should support incremental change. And in the book that you co-authored, you talk about how there are incremental changes that are related to development and changes that are operational. Can, can you explain more about that? Well, when we think of the uh, operational kinds of changes, what you're really looking at is how can we, how, how can we ensure that these changes are properly promoted. And a lot of what we're talking about on the operational side really comes down to proper use of a deployment pipeline, where we have different stages within the deployment pipeline where we can slot in particular tests, we call them fitness functions, that help validate the characteristics of the architecture. The flip side is when we think about deploying new functionality, and we'll we'll do this in in functional terms. The the example that that we use in, in the book, we have a fictional company called Penultimate Widgets, and they're the second to the last widget company, and they're they're trying to do better. And what we talk about there is they have an online site, they sell widgets, and they have a star rating service that's also used. You can um, rate resellers or delivery companies, things of that nature. And they come out with a new star rating service and they just deploy it into the environment. They don't tell anybody they have to use it. The old one is still there, but we have real-time monitoring going on within that system. And they're not just monitoring the activity of the services, but also the routes between different services. And so as different parts of the site migrate over to the new and improved rating service, eventually no, none of the routes to the old star rating servers are active anymore, and you can just dissolve it out of the architecture. And what we're getting at in, in both of these cases is that the activities that used to be manual, that used to be a person performing some kind of governance process, somebody looking at, okay, has anybody run the old star rating service? Nope. So let's take it out. Um, do we know who is using a particular version of an open source library that just has a zero-day exploit. Let's run through our list of all of the different projects that are using this particular open source library. Many of those governance processes that, that we've done in the past have been very manual, and we want to make those automated so that they are more reliable. But you're also freeing up the expensive humans to do things that humans are good at. 
which is solving more complex problems. And we're letting the computer do what the computer is good at, which is rote manual checks. What about guided change and how that fits into evolutionary architectures? Well, to me, this is the key part of the definition. Both Neil and I have been talking about evolutionary architecture for a long time. And when I first heard him speak about it, he actually called it emergent architecture. And we had a robust discussion about why I thought that was a really bad name. Um, (laughs) Because when you think of emergent, you think of, I'm just trying to respond as best I can to something. But We use the term guided because there are different definitions for what constitutes a good architecture, depending on the domain that you're in, uh, what the system is actually doing, and even some uh, organizational memory. And so what constitutes good for a trading system is very different from what constitutes good, perhaps, for a retail site where you want to support more browsing activity and such, whereas in most traditional trading systems, it's low latency, high throughput. You know, we just need to make sure things can flow through quickly. So your requirements are different across different architectures. And so we use this term guided to say that for an individual system, for an organization, we are going to define fitness functions for the architectural characteristics that are of most importance to us. And this allows decision-making to be guided by these fitness functions. And so rather than specifying a target architecture as a big block diagram on on a wall, the target architecture is actually specified by these fitness functions. They are defining what outcomes we want the architecture to achieve. And we use these fitness functions to guide our decisions about how we are going to evolve the architecture. Can you talk more about how fitness functions kind of preserve the parts of an architecture as it's evolving? Well, and that's where the deployment pipeline comes in, because we actually want to insert the execution of these fitness functions into the deployment pipeline. Now, these fitness functions are not necessarily new things. If you've done a performance test and looked at, you know, do I get a response time within the parameters that I've specified, or do I have the amount of throughput that I'm looking for? Those are all fitness functions. You are defining what the architecture has to achieve. And then you put the the execution of that fitness function into the deployment pipeline. And now you are constantly monitoring, does your architecture as it is being changed, as the code is being changed over time, does it still exhibit the required characteristics? In some of those, you might put it into fail the build if uh, if, if you violate one of those constraints, some of them that you might be more forgiving. Um, Say, when a new version of a library comes out, you might give teams three months to use the new version. And so you won't fail to build for the first three months. If they haven't changed the library, uh, you'll put out a warning so they know they have to do it. But if they get to the three-month mark and they still haven't upgraded the library, you'll fail to build. And so we uh, we use that deployment pipeline as the mechanism for enforcing adherence to to those fitness functions. And as an architecture is evolving, how do you achieve the right coupling between components and services? Well, first you have to decide what the proper coupling is. You can use different kinds of architectural tools. We talk about some of those in the book that will allow you to analyze the relationships between different services or different libraries. There's a tool called ArcUnit that allows you to specify what are acceptable 
or unacceptable relationships. And the nice thing about this is, so let's say you're working on a legacy code base and you've gotten rid of all of the cyclic dependencies, but then how do you know nobody's going to reintroduce one? Well, you put in a fitness function using something like jdepend that will fail the build if anybody tries to check in a cyclic dependency. So you can specify what is appropriate coupling between different aspects of the architecture, and then you just put that specification in the build. And now as an architect, you know no one can check in code and put it into production. Any code that violates your rules of what constitutes appropriate coupling. How about existing architectures and how hard is it to work evolutionary architecture concepts into an existing system and transition those systems? It does take a while. And the advice that that we give people is to start by identifying what are the architectural characteristics that you're you feel most vulnerable to if things changed. So if you were thinking about, for example, a again a, a an e-commerce site, and maybe you're uh, worried about changes in the payment ecosystem, you might think about, okay, how do I? What kind of abstractions do I want to maintain around anything having to do with payments, so that I can more readily adapt to changes in the payment ecosystem? It's important. You're not trying to identify where you think change is most likely to come from, because we know we can't really do that. But it's more from a systems perspective, where do you feel most exposed? You want to identify the characteristics of the system that are so critical to the success. And then you want to capture in some kind of fitness function, what do I really want to achieve? Now, when you're dealing with an existing system, you probably don't want to fail the build when you violate one of these constraints, because it may be that you're going to actually have to upgrade the system in some way to attain the level of performance that you want, for example. But by identifying these critical characteristics and continuing to run the fitness function, you can track the progress and the improvement that you are making. Um, and that's that's how we recommend people start, is just identify a few critical characteristics and start making progress on that. Once you're comfortable there, you might extend it out a little further. Well, you and Neil Ford gave a workshop about evolutionary architectures recently, back in late February at the Software Architecture Conference. And I wonder, did you hear from attendees about what kind of challenges or problems they're facing now and whether there was anything that, that struck you or, or surprised you? Well, Neil and I have also been talking about this a, a great deal. I don't know in particular that much new came up, but what, what I thought was interesting in the audience was the mix of people from uh, larger enterprises to smaller enterprises. And this was gratifying because Neil and I and Pat believe quite strongly that all of these, uh, this notion of evolutionary architecture is applicable in both small organizations as well as large, even though the implementations of it and how the governance proceeds and such will be very different. Um, and so we got perspectives from people who were you know, working in maybe a 10 or 15 person shop, as well as people who had you know thousands of, of fellow developers in their organization. Well, Rebecca, moving away from the subject of evolutionary architecture, I wanted to ask you about one of your other activities and another important effort you've been involved with. You've spoken and written quite often about gender diversity and gender equality in the tech industry and getting more women and, and especially young women into the field and into coding. 
I wonder if you can talk about where you see things standing now on this issue and the level of progress and what still needs to be done. Well, I think the major issue that we have to grapple with now is the climate and the culture in the tech industry is still not a comfortable place for women to be. And that's simply a fact. We would like to believe as an industry we're a meritocracy, but we're not. And to me, one of the real challenges that we have is how can we talk about that in a way that doesn't immediately make people defensive? When you try to talk, for example, about unconscious bias, which all humans suffer from, people hear that word bias and they immediately think, you're telling me I'm a bad person. But that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to get people to be cognizant of the biases that they bring and then do something to mitigate it, those biases. But people are not in general, very receptive to feedback like that if they feel like it's an attack, if, if they feel like they have to defend themselves. And so one of the issues I think we're grappling with right now is this recognition that humans do have these biases. And until we can have reasonable discussions about it, I don't know that it's going to get better. Much of the really explicit discrimination, that's really been driven underground. Some of it, unfortunately, in our current climate might be coming back. But in general, it's been a long time since overt discrimination has been socially acceptable. And so what we're dealing with is more subtle. The pressure on women to never, ever fail. Um, there was a conference I, I was at several years ago where the organizers on the stage when they opened the conference were talking about how hard they worked to get a more balanced lineup of speakers. And then the first round of sessions happened and somebody tweet, somebody was at a not so great talk given by a woman. And someone actually tweeted, see, this is what happens when you focus on gender diversity, you get bad talks. Now, I'm sure that men over the years have given many bad talks but it's not an indictment of all the other male speakers. But that one woman speaker who that day didn't give a good talk ended up as an indictment of women speakers. Because clearly, if you're going to focus on diversity, you obviously have to lower the bar. You obviously have to end up with bad speakers. It's those kinds of things that we have, we have to grapple with. And it's hard to do that when people immediately get defensive, feeling like you're calling them a bad person. Can you talk about some of the programs and groups that you've been involved with, such as Women Who Code and what they're doing? Yeah, there, there are many different organizations looking at different aspects of, of the problem. The AnitaB.org organization, uh, formerly known as the Anita Borg Institute for Women and Technology, they do a lot of research on aspects of both the recruitment, but also the retention and advancement of women and looking to find evidence to support the ideas that work and the ideas that don't. Um, organizations like Women Who Code are very active in trying to get people into technology with workshops and, and other support structures. There's an organization called Code Chicks that I was on the board of directors for a time. Their focus is really on kind of mid-career people, uh, women, um, helping them stay in technology or perhaps come back to technology with very hands-on workshops to help them 
keep their skills fresh. You've got Black Girls Code, which I think is a fantastic organization that focuses on young girls of color who are have so few mo- role models and, and so few places where they can actually feel comfortable learning and playing and exploring technology. So there are many, many different organizations focused at different parts of the pipeline. And that's what we need. Part of the problems that we're dealing with and why I don't think we can just focus on getting more women into the industry is women leave at a significantly greater rate than men do. And so, you know, we can double the number of women who come in, but if they're leaving at a faster rate, we're not going to make progress. So we need to address that, those issues around opportunities, the, the feeling that, that the technology industry is a good place for, for a woman to be. And we'll have links for all these organizations you mentioned in the show notes that accompany this episode. Rebecca, if our listeners want to find out more about you and what your and your activities, where can they go? Well, they can go to thoughtworks.com. I do also have um, have a personal blog that I rarely update, but I do at times. Well, Rebecca Parsons, Chief Technology Officer at ThoughtWorks, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. And thank you for listening. Once again, to find out more about the hands-on workshop that Rebecca will be leading at OzCon, the O'Reilly Open Source Convention, you can go to O'Reilly.com slash conferences. And for the book she co-authored, Building Evolutionary Architectures, as well as videos of Rebecca's talks at previous O'Reilly Software Architecture Conferences, go to Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. That's safaribooksonline.com. And we'll have links to all these items in the show notes that accompany this episode. If you like our podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher, or other platforms so that you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.